It's FAQ NYC Offcycle, where the New Yorkers podcast from the newsroom by and for New Yorkers, the city, steps back to take different and deeper looks into some of the things that are always happening here in the only place in the world. I'm Katie Hellman. Today, you're going to learn about a man named John Henderson, who was born and raised in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. As a kid recovering from the chicken pox, his mom gave him a paint-by-numbers kit, and that set off a life defined by art, looking at it, studying it, and, of course, creating it. His paintings are massive and bright and filled with the people, places, and pets that made up John's world. But art was not his day job. He worked security for Breezy Point, delivered heating oil around the city at lumber yards in Manhattan, later opened up his own shop in the meatpacking district, worked as a handyman and as an unlicensed contractor, even owned his own gallery in Chelsea just to make ends meet. He got married, had one daughter, he kept working, and he kept painting. In the summer of 2016, John had a big break. One of his paintings was exhibited in MoMA PS1's Rockaway show in Fort Tilden. John was volunteering at the Rockaway Artist Alliance at the time when other members encouraged the curators of the show to include his art. Months later, he died at home, leaving behind his daughter, Marianne, and of course, his art. Marianne joins us today to talk about her dad, his art, and her efforts to get his paintings exhibited around the city. But first, let's hear briefly from John in an interview I did with him in 2016. I wanted to be an astronaut, I wanted to be a motorcycle cop, I wanted to be, you know, everything that every kid wanted to be. Excelled in art class in high school. I fell in love with it and found it interesting, really, really interesting. So that's really what motivated me. And I've really been painting ever since high school. You get an education in art, how it works, how it's developed, who's important, why they're important, and you apply things, you steal. I like to use the word steal. You steal what you can from the great painters and you try and combine and you know, put those elements into your own work and it really enriches your painting. So it's a, something that grows as you grow and it's a reflection of your life and what it means to be a painter and an artist. Thank you so much, Marianne, for joining me. Uh, Thanks for having me. And just off the top for our listeners, Mary and I are friends. <laughs> so, you know, there's that familiarity. That is obviously why. But I've always been so fascinated by your dad. And I find his story, right, of so many other creative people, especially here in New York City. You know, you're an artist. You're a writer. You're an actor. You're a sculptor. And it's not your day job. But you just do it because you love it. And, um, you know, I know now that his artwork, four of his paintings are at Espresso 77 in Jackson Heights, Queens, um, will be exhibited for a few more weeks uh, I know this is sort of the first of what you hope will be more art shows of your dad's work as you're kind of going through it all. So um, I first briefly wanted to just have you talk about your dad, um, describe who he was as a father and as an artist. I know he said that those are sort of the two most important jobs of his life. So just kind of paint a picture, pun intended, for our listeners about what that was like and how he maybe even, I, I know he really inspired you as an artist yourself? Oh, God, who was my dad? Um, What a heavy question, right? Because he, I mean, he was such a New York character. That's the best way to describe him. I mean, he was born in Brooklyn. Um, He spent summers in Roxbury Beach, Queens, uh, which was really 
um, you'll see, and which is why I titled the show Roxbury Beach and the Prince of 14th Street. Um, he was greatly influenced by the beach, loved the beach, but was allergic. To, <laughs> he was allergic to the sun, so he would get these really <laughs> bad sunburns. So he would go out either super early in the morning or late at night. Um, and he most of his businesses, he owned a lumberyard for many, many years in the meatpacking district. Um, lived in Manhattan for many years. Uh, you know, he was a New York character. He had long hair, (laughs) big bushy beard. Um, and he just was probably one of the nicest selfless people you could really ever meet. He was always, uh, looking to help somebody, um, was really a community mainstay in the meatpacking district for probably 25 plus years, uh, between the store, between working at Prince Lumber that, which now moved, um, I think it's now up on like 10th Avenue in the 50s. Yeah, I think so. Um, he worked there for a while. He worked, uh, as a handyman at marked restaurant where I actually ended up working too when I graduated high school. Um, and he worked for, uh, you know, as a handyman in that area for a really, really long time. Um, but yeah, I mean, he was, he was a great dad. (laughs) There's no, um, there's no other, he was just a great dad. He was always my number one fan. You know, I did theater for a long, long time and, um, I had a one woman show and did stand up comedy for a little bit and he was pretty much at every show. He was at every single show, videotaping it. Um, he built sets for my show and backdrops. He, I did the show called Almost Maine. Um, and uh, he created this like eight foot by eight foot canvas of uh, the Northern Lights, which was outrageous and it unfortunately got destroyed by that was one of the paintings that got lost by hurricane sandy um i mean he did it all he drove i mean he drove me to school every day from my my sophomore year i got mugged on the train going into manhattan and then that was it he was like you're not taking the train anymore i'm driving you in every single day and he did until i mean he even drove me (laughs) Even drove me into college now that I think about it. <laughs> so let's talk about that. That's what I always, you know, and that's the, di- and again, I think for our listeners, we we talk about this a lot. You know, New York City is is such a, dist- it's it's New York City. There's, I mean, that's it, right? Mm-hmm. But there's so many different distinct places. And it's such a dichotomy for me to think of, you know, growing up on the peninsula, right? You did not sure. see many people on the peninsula like your dad with a ponytail and his yeah. pants splatter jeans. And one thing you said was funny, one job he didn't have was he got offered, I guess, a job to be an FDNY oh, dispatcher, yeah. which is like the dream union job. And you said he what? He refused. He didn't get it because he wouldn't cut his hair. He refused. Yeah, because he didn't want to cut his hair. And it was uh, he didn't like all the, <laughs> the all the rules. It was too many rules for him. So that's what I find so interesting. And it is in his art, um, which, you know, we'll include it in the podcast. Yeah. So look at it. This true, you know. When you're from one part of the city, especially a place as weird and um, insular as the Rockaway Peninsula, and I mean Roxbury, it's all it's zone beast, right? We don't you're not to insult it, but it's like there's literally it's gated and it's crazy. So to have that uh, mix of 
living in Manhattan um, as a young person, being an artist, um, encouraging you, his only daughter, to not go to the not go to girls, not go to the all girls <laughs> high school I went to. Instead, go to school in the city, which I will say, you know, knowing you a little bit, knowing about you in high school, you were totally intimidating, like the cool girl going to school in the city, you know. So I see instead of smoking <laughs> cigarettes on the boardwalk, you smoked them in Manhattan, but um, on the soup. On the soup. Can you describe, you know, how you think those both worlds were painted by your dad? And maybe even did he have trouble with it? Was it, I know you said he kind of. Yeah. Well, my dad always, um, and I kind of found, our childhood, our childhoods, very similar in that way that we always never felt like we fit in yeah. and could really find our place and be ourselves in Roxbury. I mean, obviously, you know, I found my crew. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of crews down there because you know Roxbury. It's it's so many generations of um, you know Irish families, Irish and, and Italian later on, um, and it's very clannish down there. To yeah. be quite frank, <laughs> like it's very much a you know you find your clan, your crew. It's still overall a community, um, and they take care of each other. But you know you have a very specific crew that yeah. you grew with. And my father never really fit in, in that space. He was a security guard for a little while for the co-op. Um, and he had some crazy stories <laughs> from that. Um, but he was the black sheep. I mean, he was a hippie, you know, my family, um, my grandfather was a world war II vet in the Navy. He worked on the fireboats. Um, my, you know, my dad's oldest brother, he was also a Navy vet. He went to Annapolis, you know, he was on, he was in Vietnam. My, my aunt Janet, she was in the union. She worked for, um, before it was Verizon, it was Bell, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, and even before that, I forgot. She was a CWA member. Yeah. Strong union household. Yes. Strong union household. And my dad was, you know, he discovered art in high school at Zavarian. No, I should say he discovered art, like you said, when he got the chicken pox. Yeah, but he really got good at but it. But he really school. got good at it, yeah, in high school. Uh, Brother Clem at Zavarian. Shout out to Brother Clem. Um, <laughs> who really transformed him into, you know, he became obsessed with art. He became obsessed with art. He became obsessed with painting. You know, there was a painting hanging. I don't know if it's still there anymore. There was a painting um, of his hanging at Zavarian for years. I mean, oh, wow. uh, probably like 20 years. Um, and that's not what you do in Roxbury. You don't, yeah. you know, in Breezy. You don't, not to say that it, the artists don't exist down there because they do. There is a strong artist presence now, thankfully, because of the RAA and the Rockaway Artists Alliance. But it's just not what you do down there. You become a fireman, you become a cop, uh, an EMT, you work for the city, you work for sanitation. And there's a lot of rules to follow, right? Yeah. So yeah, again, obviously, this is a podcast, so people can't, you're they're talking about art, we're not looking at it. But um how would you describe your dad's paintings in particular? I know he sketched, he did his live model, you know, that was sort of the the tools of being an artist, but his his thing were huge 
were huge paintings. So if you wanted to describe what it was like, and I know as we can talk about later, as we've gone through his paintings, you see this evolution of him as an artist. You can almost tell what decade it was made sure, in. Sure, yeah. But so how would you describe it to the someone who's never seen it before? He was a rule breaker. He mastered the rules and then he constantly broke them out of, I think it was out of, in many ways, out of spite. <laughs> it just be a rule breaker. Um, but they were, I mean, wild. He was always um, influenced by nature and the beach and animals and birds in particular. Uh, color, Very colorful. Though they, you know, a lot of his earlier work, especially in college, he hated using color. Wow. So much so he would fight with one of his professors and it was a color class. He would fight with one of his professors and write in what the color should be as opposed to actually using the color. <laughs> so that's like, that's the type of artist that he was. He always was, you know, he had an, um, he was an art history major. Uh, he had a degree in art history from Hunter College uh, as well and a fine arts degree from Syracuse. And he was obsessed with the greats. You know, he loved uh, Frida Kahlo, George O'Keefe. He loved uh, Bonnard, Jackson Pollock, uh, de Kooning. And he loved to... I mean, he said, he said it himself. He would steal from the greats and then, you know, flip it on his head. He would put patterns together that don't necessarily, like you think that they wouldn't look good together, but they do. Um, he was always inserting his own uh, sense of humor into yeah. his work. There was nothing. He tried to never really take himself too seriously. I mean, I'm looking at a painting right now of, um, you know, my two stepkids and my niece and my nephew, and they're on the beach and they're all making like these really silly, silly faces and staring back. You know, one kid has her, my Taylor has her, her tongue sticking out and her hands up by her ears, you know, making like that little moose uh, hand motion yeah. when you have the antlers. Um you know, he never tried to take himself. He took himself as an artist seriously, but not too seriously. He hated the art scene. He hated when an artist, um, when their ego was too much, too big. He was always humbling himself in many ways uh, when it came to his art. It was meant for him, but it was really meant for other people to enjoy. And he wanted to make it accessible. That makes sense. No, it does. And and you did not mention he also he loved people, pets, nature. Yes, people, pets, yes. And, and you, naked and naked ladies. And naked ladies. <laughs> yeah. Imagine my childhood bringing friends home. <laughs> bringing friends home to my house and my walls are covered in, you know, nudes. <laughs> he was really he was in he was influenced by Egon Schiel, um, who was a figure paint uh, painter and um, really played with space. And uh, if you look at his work, he kind of he 
exaggerates what the human body, particularly the female body, exaggerates the form. And my dad really did that in his work because his paintings were so massive. I mean, I had um, uh, one of my father's college friends, daughter-in-laws, she got a, her and her husband got a painting on a permanent loan. That's what my father, when he would give paintings to family and friends, mm-hmm. he would say, you're getting this painting on permanent loan. If But if a museum wants it, <laughs> taking it back. You know, yeah, yeah. that was his big thing. But he, she sent me a painting that I hadn't seen, God, since I, I've been, I've been in probably middle school, maybe high school. And, uh, it's of my cousin Krista when she was maybe about seven or eight years old and he was playing with perspective and, you know, traditionally perspective, you know, it's where your eyeline falls and it's, it, the painting almost looks, I'm, I'm actually working on a post. I'll be posting it probably later next week. It looks like an acid trip. A lot of his, wow. like that it's sometimes you look at his stuff and you're just like, it can be overwhelming. And, you know, one of the critiques that he always used to get, and he used to say, you know, screw you. Can I say that? <laughs> yeah, you can say that. You can say screw, screw you. you. <laughs> um, he would just put so much on the canvas that you would stand in front of it. You can stand in front of it for 10, 15 minutes reading it. Uh, you know, his paintings were really a long read where you could stand in front of it for 10, 15 minutes, walk away and then come back and see something that you hadn't seen before or noticed before. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, another thing that he liked to do was hide his signature mm-hmm. within the painting so that it forced you. Then it became a game, right? Then it becomes a game. It makes it accessible to kids. Yeah. Um, you know, he loved kids. He loved my, you know, we come from a big Irish family. So, you know, <laughs> there's no birth control. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a million kids running around. And my dad, he, you know, he liked to create these whimsical, wild stories that could be accessible to a two-year-old or to a 90-year-old. Um, and that's really what what I feel like his art, uh, what his art was, what he tried to do anyway. You know, and I, you'd brought it up briefly um, <clears throat> earlier, but what was it like? I know he owned a gallery in Chelsea on 27th Street, but, you know, I mean, scenes, it's so, when I think of success and trying to be successful, what defines success? Is it just fame and fortune? But how you felt his interpretation of the New York City art scene was, and I, I know you had said that he said, "Oh, I'm going to be, you know, I'm only going to get famous when I I die," which is prophetic. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, growing up around that, what would he often tell you about it? And then I guess then we can go into you know when his painting was shown at this big show locally. Um, oh gosh. Um. Well, I mean, he rejected a lot of the art scene but he still managed to somehow be on the forefront like you said you know he owned a gallery in Chelsea before it Chelsea became like a mecca for Mm -hmm. galleries for many years 
Um, he was well known in the neighborhood. His art was well known, but what do you do with eight foot by eight foot paintings or six foot, you know what I mean? They belong in museums and it's kind of hard to really show that work, show work like that. Not to say that it's not possible, obviously. Um, But growing up around that, I didn't know anything else. Yeah. I didn't know, you know, I would go to my dad's lumber yard on a Saturday because he always kept it open on a Saturday. And I mean, quite frankly, I don't remember anybody working there. (laughs) I really don't like it was, I mean, he, you know, it was a hangout. It really was a hangout for other artists, for musicians, for actors. Yeah. Um, you know, I think at, at like my dad at one point was like hanging out with, Oh God, uh, what's his name? He was in The Sopranos. Uh, Michael Imperioli, is that his Oh, name? yeah, yeah, yeah. White He's Lord. an artist, too, in addition yeah. to an actor. He, that was like, he used to hang out um, in Chelsea all the time. That's where he, that he, you know, and he would hang out with my dad and my dad's friend, Terry, who was also a photographer. And they had this, you know, they were, they actually used to do, um, you know, handyman and, and general contracting work together. Um, but for me, it it was just like, this is just my life. I would just go to the lumber yard and it was probably one of the most dangerous places to ever, (laughs) to have a kid ever be. And I was just running around and just playing. And it was so much fun because all of these different characters, I mean, just, I mean, it's the meatpacking district in the eighties and the early nineties. It was like one of the most dangerous places. Yeah. (laughs) You're just running around. And I'm just running around. I mean, you know, I would I would collect my dad always my dad and my mom, too. You know, my mother's an artist. My parents always influenced me to create, to make art and to not worry about what other people have to say about it. It's for you. It makes you feel good. So, you know, I would be like seven years old collecting scraps of wood in the lumberyard and making these, you know, with wood glue, making these sculptures. And I would sit out front of the store and (laughs) sell them for like 20 bucks a sculpture. And people would pay you 20 bucks. So this is (laughs) my claim to fame. Okay. And it used to, this was used to drive my dad crazy. There was an art dealer. Uh, His name was Alan Crespo. He was very big in like the eighties and nineties. Um, and was friends with my dad and he would tell my dad, John, I can't sell your art. It's too fucking big. Sorry. It's too big. <laughs> you can, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, it's too big. And my dad, you know, whatever they still remained, they still be, you know, were friendly and Alan would come in the store and, you know, uh, have my dad try and make frames for him and things mm-hmm. like that. And yeah. he saw me out front selling a sculpture and bought one of my sculptures and you know i'm like 20 bucks this is awesome i can't <laughs> believe i can't believe i sold this and my dad could not believe it alan out of sorry your dogs is fine that alan bought one of my sculptures like it was he's like for years i've been trying to get this guy to buy and sell some of my artwork and 
you're sitting out here <laughs> with your wooden sculptures and he bought it. So that was like my claim, claim to fame with that. And he used to drive my dad nuts. Um, but it was a very, it was, it was just a creative hub for people. It was just a hangout. My dad just had this way of making artists and people feel comfortable. Yeah. So yeah, if we could just now, you know, talk about how he got to exhibit his art and, you know, I mean, Rockaway after Sandy was such a weird place because um, it became cool and hip and you had this influx of artists and, and, and art artists from the scene and money and, you know, MoMA's involvement. Um, and that's how they became, they developed a partnership with the Rockaway Artists Alliance, which your dad was a volunteer for. Do so you want to talk a little bit about his opportunity to be included amongst all these other artists? And then um, I know I was at that event too, the weirdest dinner ever where um, Salman, <laughs> Rushdie, Salman Rushdie was there. I'm looking yeah. around, I'm like, the editor of the Rockaway Times newspaper is here and so is Salman Rushdie. Like, what is going on? Um, so how did he, so for many years, um, when, you know, we lived in Brooklyn for a little bit and then we bought a house in Roxbury and, you know, it, his life really became more about me. He became yeah. devoted to me and he, you know, as any de devoted father is, I mean, it was soccer practices. It was. I was really involved in theater. Um, so his life became, you know, when we moved to Roxbury, it really became, you know, he was, a, he was doing a lot for me. Yeah. And his art, he was still painting every day, but his, you know, his community, when he left, got smaller and it became hard, hard for him to um you know maintain that maintain that social life amongst his crew of artists yeah and people um you know that he really loved and i was always pushing him i knew about the rockaway artist alliance um you know and i really started pushing him probably when i was in college like dad rockaway artist alliance it's literally right across the street in fort tilden um, put yourself out there. And I pushed for so many, many, many years. Um, and as charismatic as my dad was, you know, he was still, you know, he was kind of shy mm -hmm. in many ways, you know, breaking into um, something new like that. And then after Hurricane Sandy, now I'm trying to think if my dad joined either before or after, it was either right before or right after he finally joined the Rockaway Artist Alliance. His studio um, got completely flooded. Uh, he managed to save, I would say probably about 80 to 90% of his artwork, um, but he lost all of his supplies, his computers. You know, my dad, when he would paint, um, he, you know, a lot of it was from, was just freehand and from his mind, but he was also a photographer and would take photographs of things of family members, portraits, friends, um, and use them for a lot of his artwork. So he lost his computer um, and really lost his space to paint. Um, and he knew that his studio in his basement, you know, that was his safe haven. Mm -hmm. But if you know, living in Breezy and Roxbury, you know, you're always getting water in your basement. 
you're oh it's not you know it's not really a great place to store paintings or paint or create so he found the rockaway artist alliance um you know through me pushing him to be a part of a community um to work with other artists and he put himself out there and god he became like they loved him and what's not to love right yeah he was such a selfless part of the community. He was always volunteering. I mean, he was doing handyman work there, fixing stuff, um, climbing up on the roof, I think, one time and looking at seeing if there was a leak up there. You know, just like he was just always involved. And he was always, you know, he learned how to, he really honed his skills on hanging art shows when he owned his gallery in Chelsea. Mm-hmm. And was always, always hanging shows for them, making frames. Um, you know, he had a, a a drawing class, a drawing group that he would go to every Monday night in Brooklyn. And he would bring members, you know, drive members from RAA with him to the art, you know, that class. But, you know, after a couple of years working with them and they got this grant to work with uh, the national parks and MoMA PS1, they were like, you got to check out this artist, John Henderson. <laughs> they really, really pushed to get my dad's work viewed and to get it in the show because they knew how special his work was, but also how special he was mm-hmm. as a just a person. He was just such a great guy. People, if you meet him, I mean, you instantly fall in love with him. I mean, he was so charismatic. He knew, he just knew how to make people feel comfortable and he was always cracking jokes. And, um, so they really were the ones they, they pushed him to get him into that show. And, and that's what happened. He, he got in and his, uh, you'll, you know, in the interview, um, his, uh, the creation of bees (laughs) painting was one of his last, that was like his last, uh, I want to say, I think that was his last show. Was that show in 20, I think that was 2016? Yeah, it was the 100th anniversary of the National Park System. Thank you. You No, of course, and it was a big show. And when I interviewed him in 2016, obviously, you know, I knew him and I knew you, but it also was a very compelling aspect of it because it was someone locally. And obviously in Rockaway, there's always this fear of like the outsiders coming in. And I think even within the, with MoMA, PS1's involvement, whether it was the dome that they built in Rockaway on 95th Street or with RAA, I would always hear rumbling, oh, they're coming in, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But it was nice to have someone who was a legitimate member who was so involved, so active. And then he also got shown alongside, you know, there was a concert, Patti yeah. Smith concert, Bloomberg Philanthropies and some stuff. You know, the, just their involvement. Um, and he ended up hanging Patti Smith's show, which was yeah. like, you know, my father, he looked up to, in many ways, Patty Smith and her mm-hmm. artwork and her singing and just that scene, right? She was in the hotel, hotel Chelsea. She lived there yeah. for Christ's sake. Um, so for him to be able to do something like that and work with her, um, you know, my dad who's so disarming, he, you know, he was like, I made her laugh. Like yeah. that was such a big deal to him. It was the big deal was making her laugh. It wasn't him hanging, you know. Her artwork or helping her set up. I I can't now I'm the name of of the show that she did specifically, but she had that what that beautiful white bed. Yeah. 
the middle of uh, <laughs> that well, building. As, as we are filming this, the building in which Patti Smith and other artists' art was shown is currently on fire in Fort Tilden, which made, you know, as I was prepping for this interview, I was like, is this really happening? But yeah. yes, unfortunately, when this is, it'll be, hopefully the fire will be out by the time this comes out or else yeah. it'll be really then, bad. Yeah, let's see if that building's still there. But um, to help her set that up, um, was really special to him. So, you know, my, like my, it's so very much like my father to gain notoriety right before he got, God love him, passes away. I mean, that's just, that's just John Hederson, you know, and, and you said before, my dad always said he would never become, he's not going to become famous until he dies. And that was my job was to get him famous. So here I am. <laughs> So, not know. to laugh about death, but I guess he it would be appropriate. You know, I mean, I guess we can talk about that. So this was, you know, the summer of 2016, this, you know, bizarre opening again. We're sitting at this weirdo dinner. You were there. I kept on the beach. On the beach in Fort yeah. Tilden. And I'm like looking at this crazy cast of characters. And then I look over, I go, is that Salmon Rushdie? Like off the <laughs> side? You know, this is not the Rockway that I grew up in. Right. Um, that you grew up in. So I was like, what? And, you know, I think I remember going to Kevin Boyle, who was the publisher and editor of the Rockway Times at the time, you know, and I was like, what the hell is going on? But, you know, that was just the the surreal nature of it. But, you know, we can talk about, and I know your your dad passed away that September. Um and you could, you know, share, he was found in front of, you know. So my dad, um, my dad suffered, he had a long history of health issues. He had ulcerative colitis, um, was on prednisone for many years, and it brought from the prednisone, it brought on diabetes. Um, and then he had a series of strokes in the last, uh, probably last 10 years of his life. Um, you know, what, one of this, he had a stroke, his second stroke, he actually lost his peripheral vision and had uh, hand tremors from it. You know, it's incredible, but he had to basically reteach himself how to paint. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's not noticeable to anybody other than probably me. And if you really study his work, um, but yeah, he was in his studio sitting in front of a blank canvas. I mean, I don't, it sounds like the ending of such a great movie, right? <laughs> like yeah. he, had this, he really did. I mean, it was very hard for me, obviously, because my dad was very, you know, he was young. He was only 62 years old when he passed away. Um, right. 62. Yeah. Um, so he, him passing away, that young was hard on everybody else, obviously, except him. That's exactly how he would have wanted it. He still had all of his wits about him, obviously. I mean, he was still running around and, and working really, really hard. I mean, after he had his second stroke, I was like, Dad, I think it's okay. Like, I'm, I mean, I was in my 20s at that point. Um, and, you know, living. I mean, I, I had a full-time job. I was living in Brooklyn. I was, you know, engaged to be married. And I told him, Come, you know, you don't have to work as hard anymore. And he just did. He just, he was just always working. He ate, he slept, he worked, he painted. That was his life. That's all he did. Um, but it was such a, that's just who he was to, to pass away in front of a blank canvas in his art studio. Like the, I can't think of any other way that he would have wanted to to go 
So let's talk now, you know, on this the second part of it, right? Um, your mission as a daughter, right? No pressure. You just have to get your dad's art to be famous now <laughs> um, while taking care of your daughter. But I know I've helped you going through his art. Um, you know, I have a one of his paintings on permanent loan. I hope hopefully permanent yeah. in my room <laughs> that you had never seen before. It's of a blessed yeah. father holding a baby. It's called Madonna and Child, but she kind of looks like Madonna the singer. And he kind of the baby Jesus kind of looks like him. And it's fun. And it always has people like, what is this yes, in your living yeah. room? Which is what I love about it. But if you want to talk a little bit about the process that you're going through now of cataloging his art on Instagram, which will tease, obviously, will promote, um, but then also trying to get his art up. And if you want to talk a little bit about what it was like, you know, hanging his art, you know, in Espresso 77 in Jackson Heights in this gallery and seeing yeah. and seeing people's reactions to it. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a daunting task. He's got close to like 40 years worth of sketchbooks and drawings and these huge paintings that are rolled up and, you know, in my basement. And it's such a, you know, I am four foot 11. <laughs> and I physically, for me to pull these canvases out is nearly impossible. Um, but my, my husband will just pull out like 10 at a time. Mm -hmm. I'll unroll them. And sometimes I've seen them and sometimes I have it. And or I don't remember them because I was, you know, I was a kid. I was little. Or, you know, I I think we, you and I, we found a painting together um, that I'd never seen before. As it was about, it was a couple on a park bench. Yeah. With that mime, I think. Was it, yeah. it was a mime? What's this mime doing here? <laughs> a mime behind them. It was in Central Park. A mime is behind them. With a knife, I believe. So Get ready weird. to rob up. Just like weird, you know, like where God, he was just always so his brain just operated on such a different level than everybody else. Um, but it's very emotional to, you know, because it, it's like, you know, when somebody dies, you're you're you if you've ever had a loved one pass away and you know, particularly a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or whatever, you go through their things, you keep what's important, you toss what isn't, you donate. Um, this is like an ongoing process for me. And I ha I really have to be in the right mindset to go there because it's very emotional. You know, every piece of art, work is you know my dad's energy is still there right energy never dies um and it's a very emotional process for me to sit there to study the painting to um you know then to photograph it um and to sit down and physically write about my father's work and any um any memories it brings up for me, sometimes they're painful, sometimes, you know, sometimes they're wonderful, sometimes it's things I've never I hadn't even thought about mm -hmm. in years. You know, when I when I I got that um when I was looking at that photo of of, of from um my father's friend, 
of that painting that she had on permanent loan. I hadn't seen that painting in high school and it immediately took me back to like, oh, I remember this painting. It was on show at a Sill gallery and it was his solo show. And I remember being a kid and, you know, before there was the internet and, and, um, you know, you sent out postcards to people and I can remember sitting there and put, you know, putting stamps on postcards of this particular painting. And at the opening, you know, I'm 13, 14, 13 years old, working the bar, giving out wine to people. <laughs> I, like my eighth grade teachers showed up because I invited them. And I remember thinking like, oh my God, how cool is this that my teachers from, you know, from Mark Twain, from middle school, Mark Twain. <laughs> oh, everyone who goes to Mark Twain, you got to make you hate Mark that. Twain. I know you hate that. That's why I said that. Um, my teachers from middle school showed up. And so it, it's, it's, it's a, it's a wonderful thing, but it's a lot emotionally. And I, I try to do it as much as I, uh, can emotionally handle it. That's the best way to put it. As much as that I can emotionally handle it. Cause I also, you know, I have a toddler running around and I, um, you know, and I freelance production work. So it's, it, it's a lot, but it's, it always, you know, once when I finish a post for the Instagram page and I put it out there for people to read and for people to see, it really, it really makes me happy because I know, um, the joy that my father's work has brought to people over the years and the joy that it's brought to me. Um, and I just, you know, God, as corny as it sounds, like I want to spread the joy, you know, I want to like, the world is a really wild place right now and art is important and his art is important. So it's important for me to get it out there and be uh, as personal as I can be. And then also try to look at it, um, you know, shout out to New York City Museum School, you know, where the first time I ever learned uh, the, you know, when you look at a painting, what, what subjectively and objectively and uh, writing down um, just like what you see and what you think the story, the, the story or the theme or what the artist was going through at that time, you know, that that's an important aspect of painting as well is the story around creating this piece. Yeah. Well, Mayor, I, like I think that's a great way to end it. You know, yeah. I want to promote uh, john.e.joe.art on Instagram. You're posting his art, you know, posting the stories behind them and your recollections of it. Um, four of his paintings, correct, yes. are on Thank display you. right now. And, and for sale. And for sale. I mean, you know, not permanent and forever. I know. <laughs> I know so many people are buying art right now, but. <laughs> yeah, everyone's got to. Uh, it's at Espresso 77, 35-5777 Street in Jackson Heights. Um, and I appreciate you coming on. Um, I appreciate you. You've been such an angel through this process. You really have pushed me to get a stuff out there. And you really are the one that connected me with Espresso 77 and the wonderful Ah, oh, the wonderful crew over there. God, they're it's what an amazing cafe. What an amazing yeah, great. they really are. There's it's they're so wonderful there. Go there and see the art, please, and buy <laughs> buy a co an iced coffee there because it's yeah. FAQ. This has been FAQ NYC Off Cycle. 
We're part of The City, a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard-hitting reporting that serves the people of New York. Our work is freely available to everyone at thecity.nyc and is supported by listeners like you. Go to thecity.nyc slash give if you'd like to pitch in. We are an affiliate of NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists, Critics, and Artists. Find it all at popula.com. Our hostess episode was me, Katie Honan. Adam Kamara is our engineer. Thank you, listener, for joining us and making it this far. Be kind, be cool, and we'll be back soon with more.